author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour. And what do you know, I have another of my favorite interviews. I say that a lot, don't I? There are so many of them that I've enjoyed a lot, and one of them would be this one. This is an interview with Bill Zamey. Bill Zamey is one of the most well-known magazine journalists. Remember when magazines would have these in-depth profiles about certain personalities? Some of those people that you could never reach. Bill Zamey was always known as that guy who got to talk to that person. I'm also proud to call him a friend of mine. Anytime I experience any kind of victory or I land an interview that I think is particularly exciting, I always tell Bill Zamey, and he always has some kind of clever response. He's a real wordsmith, and getting text from him is a real pleasure. I hope to one day interview Bill Zamey again, but for now, since it's the week of Frank Sinatra's birthday, I thought I would pull this one out. We discussed the centennial of Frank Sinatra, which was back in 2015. Bill Zamby wrote a book called The Way You Wear Your Hat, Frank Sinatra and the Lost Art of Living. He's a real fan of Frank Sinatra and has a lot of insight. I hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking with a man who is a best-selling author. He's been called one of the preeminent interviewers in the country. He's the author of several books including The Way You Wear Your Hat, Frank Sinatra, and The Lost Art of Living. He is joining us here for the centenary of Frank Sinatra. Thank you so much for joining us. Paul, I'm thrilled to speak with you. You're a man who knows his material. Well, I appreciate it. And a young man, you see, you're exactly what, what the deal is. That's why I wrote this book years ago called The Way You Wear Your Hat. Guys like you, who are guys like me, who needed a little, a little uh, steering in life, you know. And I always felt that Frank Sinatra embodied a, a code of style that no man has ever achieved before or since. And I came to learn that was the case. But it all came from like being a young guy. Well, I'll tell you more about that. You should ask me a question, Paul, because I'm happy to be here on the Paul Leslie Interview Show. <laughs> well, I think it, we can kind of start at the beginning of your Sinatra story. What made you become a Frank Sinatra fan? Well, see, this is exactly what we're talking about. You revealed to me briefly, we chatted before we went on the air here, and you're a man in your, uh, you're in your mid-30s. Is it all right to give away your age? So you're a young fellow? I think age only uh, helps your, your uh, advance your cause here. But I, I was a young guy who, funny, I was uh, in the car just a little while ago, actually within the last half hour, and weirdly enough, New York, New York, came on the radio. It wasn't even a serious station. I, I have to tell you, it was, uh, it was at an actual radio station in, uh, in northern Wisconsin, where I happen to be visiting right now. And I remember when that song came out, it was, you can hear the wisdom in his voice then. He's the old man at this point. It was from the Trilogy album, which uh, he made late in his career. I believe it came out in like 1980. Was it, is that right, Paul? I don't have it in front of me. But, yes. Uh, was it 1980 in, in New York? New York became a big hit. I, I believe it was then. I was just graduating from college. I had already found my way to Sinatra. I just I 
think he's an essential for men. Men need to, you know, eventually they're going to come around, uh, you know, and, and listen, you're a young guy, and I'm sure you're a contemporary man in every way, but you're Sinatra, who's more contemporary than Frank Sinatra at any age? But I remember at the time knowing from that, you know, New York, New York, you could you could hear it. What a, this is a wise old oracle, you know, and when that album came out, much was made of that, that it was sort of really his bravura final act, and it started then, and I know you have my friend Charlie Pignon on the show. He spoke of sort of the power of that song, uh, sort of captivating a whole new generation somewhat. But what it also did is it elevated Frank to this new iconic place as this. He had not been quite a god at that point, but he somehow had achieved it. That was sort of the... Uh, He'd gone from being the chairman to something of a of a of a an oracle in in the universe. I mean, when you'd mention his name, you'd mention it hushingly with with great reverence, you know, or certain people would. Or there would be the opposite: people who thought they knew everything about it because he was Italian and may have known mobsters. And that, of course, is the most ridiculous attitude in the world to have about Frank Sinatra, because he's indefinable by ethnicity. He's other than his passion. But anyway, why Sinatra? Because I guess it started early on, even in college and beyond, you'd fantasize about this guy to some degree, living this exciting life in Las Vegas. You know, you'd hear all the stories of the Rat Pack, of course, and you'd see them all on television, bumping into each other on each other's television specials or whatever. And you'd see the fraternity that was going on. And I kind of grew up watching the Dean Martin show to some extent, you know, uh, as a kid, but it made a huge impression on me. Uh, that Dean Martin was this extraordinarily cool customer who Sinatra happened to revere in his own way as his best pal. There was something going on with these guys. They knew more than we did. I kind of came up with the idea, let's hunt this man down and actually ask him questions that might help fellas answer the eternal question of what would Frank do? <laughs> you ever play that game? Well, in my head, I do, yes. Yes, we do, right? Isn't that true? I mean, especially when you... When you listen to him sing, and you understand, right there, you can know, you just simply know he has a mastery of of human emotions and the spectrum of it and an understanding of them. I mean, because there is no greater interpreter. Uh, I mean, it's been said endlessly, and, and it, it, it almost seems hackneyed to keep saying it. You know, here he is. He's, he's turning 100. I, I, I suspect he's swimming in. Oceans of Jack Daniels or whatever's making him happy, right? You know, this year. Uh, there's something about him that he's a reassuring presence in the universe. And now more than ever, I think young people are kind of coming around and you see a certain reverence. You know, this book I wrote, and I'll get around to that more so, but it, it's appealed to, I, I've been charmed to see that it's like people have gone on the record talking about how much it's meant to them to read this book the way you wear your hat. It's like, John Bon Jovi, I think, talked about it on Larry King, and, and uh, Sean Diddy Combs, and, and Seth MacFarlane says it helped him learn how to drink Jack Daniels. And I think it all begins with drinking, too, I'm, I'm afraid to say. It, it's kind of a, uh, a fraternal romance with nightlife that really appeals. You know, there's a, a classiness to it, a, a style. And it was, it's not just going down to the bar, the quarter bar for a pop. It's kind of like 
showing up and making an impression. And these were all helpful notions earlier on. And and it seems they I hear it remains something of a you know a, a nightlife bible in a way because it's sort of Frank explaining not just how to do all that but how to get on with the rest of your life too. It's uh, I. I wanted to ask him about work. I wanted to ask him about love. I wanted to ask him about style, certainly style in all areas of life. And that would include, you know, advice. Uh, he loved to be asked advice. He he was a, he loved being a wise man. And he played that role from the beginning. He was smarter than everybody. He was the guy who wanted to help you out. If, if you were, if you're ever in trouble, call me. You ever want me to hit somebody for you? Call, you know, it's just he, this is what he said in, in passing to, to people, uh, and it was true. I mean, it's true. And I came across a quote. He was talking to the writer Darson Kanan one time, and he talked about what I really want to do is pass on what I know to younger people. If, you know, if I could do that, I'm paraphrasing. That's exactly what I, you know, more than anything else, I would love to do that. And I, it occurred to me, well, there's my opening. So I reminded him that he had said that. In, in a letter I sent, and when it occurred to me, I wanted to get to the bottom of this. For a piece in Esquire magazine, as it turned out, it was a piece that ran just after his uh, 80th birthday. It was uh, Dean Martin had died just a few weeks after, no, a couple weeks after Frank turned 80. And it was kind of a strange, bleak moment. You know, it was, a, a, you know, exultant on the one hand, and he had, you know, he had just done the thing at, at the Grammys, and Bono had read that sort of an amazing speech, you know, that lives in you, You're familiar with that, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that was actually another tremendous kick in the head to, to a generation when Bono had this... I mean, you should play that at some point for, for your listeners. Uh, and it's, it's uh, a terrific little uh, precise on the man's life, you know, and what he represents to, to, to all of us. And, and again, that was sort of concurrent with what I was doing at the time, I was sort of floored because I'd already begun this exercise with him before he turned 80, but well, you know, well into the year, I think 1990, from 1995 onward, I had written the, the liner notes to uh, duets two. I was asked to, to do that. I was working at Rolling Stone at the time. And shortly thereafter, I went over to Esquire magazine as a, as a regular contributor. But back then, it was sort of a thrill to be a Rolling Stone writer being asked to write, you know, liner notes, which is the most sacred thing in the world for Frank Sinatra. You can only imagine. People probably understand liner notes or the, the little essays you'll find inside your album. On the back cover in the old days, you know, there was a guy who did Frank's liner notes in the old days named Stan Cornyn. The God rest his soul, he left us this year, I believe, or in the last year or so. And he was a poet. That man wrote... He was actually a record executive for Reprise. He worked at Warner Brothers, you know, and Frank had started his own label, you know, Reprise Records and with Mo Austin and, and those guys. But I guess Hornin was an executive always nearby, but he was also a writer, and he would write these magnificent tone poems, which is, a, I'll come back to that term, but the, about, you know, just what it was like to be in the room when Frank was recording an album or whatever album, or just creating the, the visceral thrill if I would, I would really uh, urge anybody who loves Frank to go back and, and dig up the Stan Cornyn liner notes wherever possible. They're all through the reprise years, and and he uh, on some re re releases in the last five years, the Joe Beam collection and the Count Basie collection. 
Cornyn wrote updates, sort of overviews of that time. Anyway, he's a terrific writer, just a wonderful writer, uh, and he wasn't really a professional writer in that regard. He was, I think he stayed in the, uh, the record business until he left uh, and retired. So I kind of come into the Sinatra fold in a twofold way. I'd begun this dialogue with his people oh, years even before that, well into the early 90s. And it, it grew into that moment where they asked me to do those liner notes. And then at that same time, I'd just come up with the idea to start slipping in these questions. It became a 96 Esquire piece that became the book in 1997, The Way You Wear Your Hat. Because there was an awful lot left to say. I had included a lot of my questions about life uh, and his responses in the Esquire piece, but there were so many more that I did not and didn't have time or room for it. If, uh, and I came to realize there were there were others. I wanted to pursue this in, in a larger way, and they, he was his people were all for it. Anyhow, did you ask me one question about 20 minutes ago? I can't remember. <laughs> ah, I said, what made you become a Frank Sinatra fan? Does that answer that? Somewhere in there, I swear to God, there is an answer yeah. in, in that long, big loaf of, of, of wind that I just uh, bleated. Exactly. Tell me, and you? How did I become a Frank Sinatra fan? Exactly. Oh, gosh. I mean, I like really uh, that kind of those kind of songs. I just like the standard so much. And so... Did I, it begin with the music, or did it begin with the legend? It began with the music for me. Yeah, definitely. I was a bigger Perry Como fan before Frank Sinatra. You're amazing. This man is 34 years old, ladies and gentlemen. He, he says, <laughs> Perry Como. Perry Como, incidentally, uh, was a terrific singer. Very underrated, but obviously the most relaxed man who ever lived. So Perry Como was is like Dean Martin on sleeping pills. So you're you're <laughs> you're so you're. Smoothest guys in the world, though. Just amazingly smooth guys. Frank wasn't about smooth, though. Well, tell us about the first time you encountered Frank Sinatra in the flesh. What was your first impression of him? Well, I, I'd been in his midst a bit. That kind of came with the territory of, uh, especially around his 80th birthday, there was a lot of... I had begun this exercise with him via the facts, believe it or not. Can you imagine? Remember the facts machine. And th these are just questions that I, rather than mailing them, I had to have some sense of urgency, but I would send, I would send them in, in uh, batches. They'd come back. Susan Reynolds, who uh, was his publicist and the daughter of his longtime publicist, Lee Salters, she was truly the facilitator of all this, and I couldn't have done it without her, that's for certain. And she worked very closely. She went on to work very closely with uh, Mrs. Sinatra, Mrs. Barbara Sinatra, you know, in the, uh, in, in the aftermath. But I would say she and I had begun this little game, and she's, because he got a kick out of the idea. But your question was simply, again, your question was what? Listen to me. What was your first impression of him? Like, oh, oh, upon meeting, oh, upon meeting him, yeah, yeah, being in his presence, yeah. Well, that's crazy. It's just like he's—it's electricity. It's—I it's, mean, I, I, you know, again, the things you say about Frank Sinatra. I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. Hyperbole is not a terrific uh, way to go. I'm telling you, there is something otherworldly about the atmosphere, the ionosphere around that guy. I was 
around him, like I say, for a few different events and uh, in Los Angeles and also, in, you know, when I say events, they would always spill into the night, you know, and be uh, hangouts later. That was the that was the essence of everything. And of course, that that is the essence of why that book was uh, written to begin with. It was about the wee small hours, about those moments of self-reckoning and self-doubt and, and everything else, you know, late at night where you're bumping into furniture. You're uh, you know, if your if your heart's been ripped out from under you, uh, and this goes for women too. It, it it sounds very masculine, and there is something about Frank that's very very masculine. But it's good for for both sexes, just in terms of what his voice can do, the healing powers of his voice. But I met him in New York at uh, at one of the birthday tributes, and you know his favorite color is orange. Has that come up yet on the Paul Wesley interview show? I knew that it was orange, but nobody has said that. Until well, it's high time someone spoke of orange and, and, and Mr. Sinatra in the same breath. So he was a painter, you know. He, he painted beautifully. He painted very, very geometric, intriguing paintings. People can find them online, I'm sure. His daughter, Satina, put out a book of his paintings, actually photographs of his paintings and called A Man and His Art. That was years and years ago. That's a book that's uh, a rarity. It ought to be highly coveted, but orange orange is really a color he would fall into whenever possible, and he always called it the happiest color. I knew all that, and I went out to uh, buy a tie that day. I just figured I'd better find an orange tie, and I found the orangest tie at the nicest store on Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue that I, I could. I, I, I forgot where, but it was a Turnbull and Asser tie, and uh, I still have it. It, it was a little of rainbow polka dots, but very, very tastefully appointed. Basically, this was one incredibly honking orange tie. And I, I came up to him and I said, what do you think? These were my first words to Mr. Sinatra were, what do you think? Too orange? I'm sort of proud that those were my, my first words to the great to the great man in the midst of all this. And he, and he looked at me, tried, he looked at me, well, I held the tie out for him. He said, no, it's it's orange. It's marvelous. He was very, very sweet, very kind. But he was in a room full of people, very, very famous people. Nobody, of course, will ever be as famous as him. Very few people will be as famous as, as he, I should say. But he elevated his presence when he entered that room. It was it, it changed the entire atmosphere. And these are all all the people from you know uh, God he. I, in, in his midst in New York, God, it was just a, uh, I can't even begin to tell you. I, I, we'd have to go back to the time, but we're talking some of the towering giants of show business. And he walks in, and he's just about to turn 80, and he likes the place. Just because you feel him. You feel him in the room. You feel him before you see him. That's kind of how they say and that was always the case, you know, when he walked into Chili's in the old days, or which is another great fantasy to think of him walking into this saloon in New York run by his pal, who would later become his close confidant. They're buried together in Palm Springs, as a matter of fact. Jilly Rizzo, I speak of. But, uh, yeah, the legends of this joint uh, in midtown Manhattan that Frank uh, frequented, and the way he would walk in there, and, and the place would fall silent. There's a, a story I, I was on a book about Johnny Carson. I was the only guy Carson played. Based on my Sinatra c connection, I think Johnny Carson was a big 
Frank Sinatra fan, and I was able to be the only guy Carson spoke with for an Esquire piece in in uh, his retirement, 10 years into his retirement. He would die a couple of years after that. But he was a huge Frank fan, and there was a story about Jilly's in the 60s where Johnny was doing The Tonight Show in New York back then. Frank suddenly came, you know, he, he, Johnny was in the back sitting with uh, Ed McMahon, who would often go out with Johnny on the town because Johnny was not a great drinker. He would uh, he would get a little messed up, and which messed to Frank to this day. You know, Frank didn't like any anybody who who got out of line when they were drinking, or you know, uh, it's uh, strangely enough, he was he was pretty uh, tactful about these sorts of things. But Johnny apparently was sort of bemused by the idea that his entire place fell silent all of a sudden as, as Frank made his way to the back with his guys around him. He comes sort of face-to-face with Johnny sitting at his, his table. In the silence, breaks the silence and, and says loudly, looks at his watch and then looks at Frank. Frank, you said 1130. At, <laughs> well, beyond that. And of course, it was hilarious at the time. But you know the uh, uh, yeah, the story goes that Ed McMahon either had to uh, get him out of there. Frank either fell down laughing, or the other story is Ed McMahon had to whisk Johnny from the premises quickly, lest his, his fellows take it out on him. Now that's all the legend of Sinatra and all that stuff. That's classic, you know the uh, the intimidation and the uh, it just stokes the the myth, but. The man was a man. He was not a uh, he was not a thug. He was a gent. This guy was a gent. I'm not a defender, but I mean, it is funny when people just want to dismiss him readily. They and I, fewer and fewer people do. But you'll find you'll find that you must come across an interesting amount of. What, what, what do your friends think? What do your contemporaries think of Frank? Well, there was one person that asked me, uh, a guy a little younger than me. He asked me. He said, "I need a book. Recommend a book to me." And I'm not just saying this. I said, you should get this book the way you wear your hat. And he guy. read, <laughs> and he read that book in a day. Yeah, I mean, he's not really a reader. I think that a lot of guys are starting to learn what it is to be cool. And maybe I'm crazy here, but what what lately has been identified as being cool is not cool. Mm-hmm. Which kind of brings me to one of my questions. You said that before that Hefner. Sinatra, and you were just talking about Carson, you called them the pillars of swinging cool men. I suspect I might have, yes. They were like the three guys when I was growing up in Chicago. I guess a baby boomer. Boom, I was born in 58. So, you know, Frank was already Frank by the time I was born. But I did, you know, I was I was able to hear him on the radio, you know, with Strangers in the Night, you know, and, and My Way, and, and Something Stupid with Nancy. It's huge number one hit. I heard all those, you know, and I was I was aware of Frank as a semi-contemporary performer, although he was, uh, even then, you know, the the elder statesman, he was older than Elvis. Elvis was making all those movies at the time of the 60s, you know, all of his uh, Elvis movies, for lack of a better term, you know. You know, and Elvis was, God knows, cool. Jeez, I mean, Elvis. Elvis, another one, incidentally, he walks in a room and the, and the temperature shifts. Same thing. I've been told that on authority from people who experienced it. But and what is that? What is? How is it that they come in a room and with their own energy, their own sense of self, and sort of have this ionic presence that sort of electrifies? It's a very strange thing. I mean, Bill Clinton, they say, had that, 
and still does. There's a magic, and, and not, very, very few icons have that. And it, it, what's funny is uh, Frank was never in hiding the way Elvis was. Frank had a public life. Frank went to restaurants. People went to uh, at times of the day that people, you know, were still there. It wasn't like he had to clear out a joint. He, he certainly did oftentimes, but or he'd end up being the last one there with his gang. But he always, I he felt sorry for Elvis. I've, I've heard, I've heard that said that Elvis did that to himself. That Elvis allowed himself to be sort of sheltered and shielded away from the public and and from life itself, really, to the point where you know he he his world, Elvis's world, became sort of a a far more peculiar world than Frank Sinatra's world, which was pretty much the same world we all walked through, you know, and, that, and I guess that's the key to Sinatra. Is he's, he, he's every man plus, plus, plus. <laughs> Johnny and Hef, Johnny and Hef were also in the 60s, you know, uh, I mean, Johnny Carson was the, again, these guys were, they changed the way we felt about everything. I mean, in terms of one way or another, they had this epic effect on the culture, those three guys. And all in somehow the same vein of, of a more intelligent, frank, candid, but stylish way. Romance and everything that goes with that. But they're very romantic heroes, those guys, if you think about it. Well, I can make a case. A lot of people would say Hopper is a romantic hero, but that's a whole other can of worms. I know him pretty well, so I, I could speak out authority about him as well, but... But, yeah, these guys, they represented something to me as growing up. And, and I realized if I was able to write about them, that would be like my dream. And I've been able to do that and get to know their worlds very, very intimately. And that's a thrill. Privilege. If you were introducing Frank Sinatra at a cocktail party to someone and they had no conception of who Sinatra was, how would you introduce Frank to that other person? Well, I'll tell you something. That would never happen. <laughs> yeah, it's totally hypothetical. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you, you don't introduce Frank Sinatra. Oh, you know, you would actually. You probably here's Mr. Sinatra, you know, or whatever. I don't know. Uh, how would I? I mean, really? I mean, well, first of all, if they haven't got the uh, the memo before that moment about who he is, I don't. You know, you don't. I guess you're asking me more like, how would I explain Frank to someone who doesn't understand who he is? I guess we're never going to have that problem, you know, Paul, because it's it's one of those things. I understand the impulse to ask it, but I don't, you know, it's funny. And the answer to that is it, he's just, it's it's like, who's Elvis? You know, here's Elvis. I don't know. What would you say? So, yeah, uh, I, you know, I mean, really, I mean, he is the, the magician. He's the most important voice of the century. I heard somebody say, I think Jimmy Kimmel show recently, it's like a, a generation gap quiz thing that they do sometimes. And I heard a girl say, I love the 20th century. And I thought, what? What? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, right. And it was like, great. And I thought, okay. But she was like, she knew a thing or two about the throwbacks. I guess we, I'm, I guess, a throwback. You call people, you're a throwback. The younger people are when they come to the, come into the Cathedral of Sinatra, and I don't mean to make it sound, the Cathedral, it's, it's one swinging place, believe me, it's not, it's not a hallowed hall, but there is reverence to be had. And I found that with all of his friends, too, I was encouraged 
when I was putting this thing together. And back when I was doing the escort piece too, it, I was given free reign of his of his intimates and told call him for we will vouch for you always. And, and they did and, and talked to us. And people love talking about Frank, but there's always a reverence at first. I mean, well, it's always a reverence, but it's they love they they light up people when they tell stories of Frank Sinatra. They light up. They just especially if they knew if they been with him and hung with him and, and had that sort of special peculiar thrill of being in his in his group. They all have stories. Usually, it's about staying up with him because he loved to stay up late. He loved to stay up all night. You know, I, there are a lot of reasons for that, probably, but he, I think he felt safest at night, and he slept at the day, and it's a strange thing. But he, oh, one of my favorite things he ever said is, I'm night people. Who says that? I'm night people. He was. He was the guy who, uh, one of his friends said, you know, in the world would invite you to a black tie, black tie uh, event, and before he hangs up the phone, say, by the way, bring your sunglasses. <laughs> the intimation being, you're going to stay up all night and you're going to see the dawn with me. He made that romantic. Now, you talk to a lot of these people, they're all, they love the idea that they did it, but they are, when they think back of how hard it got to be, this guy, much older than them, was putting them all to shame. He was, he wasn't triple fisting drinks by any means. He just knew how to nurse them. He loved conviviality. He didn't love being alone. Only, only when he was, only when he needed to find solace. Only if he was grieving, he would, he would like to be alone. But otherwise, not at all. What was it about drinking that Sinatra liked? Well, I mean, I, what is it about drinking? I think it just became a part of the culture. When we were talking about being a throwback. I was fortunate enough, and I believe it was 1986 to in Chicago get the assignment from Playboy to, to uh, do the Playboy interview, the big Playboy interview with Jackie Gleason, who happened to be in town making a movie called Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks. Young guy named Tom Hanks. Have you heard of him? Anyhow, that's what the old geezers would say when they tell a story like this. Anyhow, but anyhow, Gleason, uh, I grew up watching his show too. I mean, he was a, he was a staple on Saturday nights. He would have a show. People stayed home and watched his show. You know, from, Miami is my variety show on CBS, and and it was a different world. He was they, they called him the great one, but the honeymooners, of course, will live forever. But he was so much more than that. He was a very stylish man. He was a man very much like Sinatra. And in fact, he's the one who told me I would ride around Chicago in a trailer, you know, because these stars get their own trailers, obviously, when they're making movies, and they would take them to different locations. And he would pass time with me. I love to help guys pass time, if that's the case. And, and in this case, I learned stories of of a world I knew nothing of, and, and it was as though I, I was hearing cowboy and Indian stories, and I was you know ten years old. There was nothing more thrilling than listening to these stories of drinking nights at Toots Shores in New York, and and Gleason. It was then, and I will I, I I am the reason people know. Uh, Jackie Gleason was the one who, in fact, uh, first introduced Frank Sinatra to Jack Daniels, his, uh, his you know, ambrosia, his, his special ambrosia. They'd have a, a relationship forever. I believe Gleason told me a story where he's, what's a good drink if you want to get really hammered, he asked Jackie Gleason. Something along those lines. 
very much along those lines. It, it, it basically wanted a drink to get, I suspect, to deal with an element of pain. I, why do people drink? I mean, I don't know. There are many reasons. To have fun and also to, to uh, numb pain, you know. And Sinatra was great at both of those. That, that's just, uh, he was the great artist of our time. No one was more artful at these things than of having a great time or a, or of uh, introspection, quiet moments, you know, where you're you need to numb yourself from the ferocious pain you might be going through if you're if you've had a loss, you know, or a relationship gone sour or something. I believe he could have been diagnosed as something of a bipolar personality. I, I'm certain of that. Nobody felt feelings like Frank Sinatra felt feelings, and you hear that in the music, but I guess that's the thrill of listening to this guy and realizing he knows whereof he speaks, whether it's about flying to the moon or whether it's about to hear that rainy day. He knew exactly what each one meant to the nth degree. That's interesting. I mean, so many of his songs are, they're so upbeat uh-huh. and some of them are just so depressing, like we spawn ours. Absolutely. Yep. Would you say that there was one that was more him? Mm. Well, oh, no. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really. No, I don't know. Well, you know, I, I mean, we could go back and forth with psychologists on this. And I think it's the ability to experience feeling profoundly. I mean, he when he was happy, no one was happier and you heard it in the music. And he was telling you, I want you to be happy too. And when he was introspective and alone and confronting loss as these lyrics would in songs. There, there was nobody who'd ever felt lower. And I asked him in one of my questions, how do you get over a broken heart? He simply said, you don't, that you, you never really do. And that, that, that he pointed out, he said, but I understand listening to one of my albums can help. <laughs> but he, by then he already knew why I was knocking out his door, those kind of things. But yeah, was he one more than the other? I, I think you have to feel, I think you have to feel extreme sad if you can feel extreme happy. So I suspect he had a profound nature for feeling alone or lost, maybe, I think, which made happiness so much more thrilling for him. That's just my guess. But I, I he's an artist, you know, artist. I mean, Frank Sinatra is not just a Singer. Well, he's the saloon singer, is what he liked it. I think Charlie Pignon told you that, that about his passport, which I don't know that that's true, I, but that's an amazing, it may be, because Charlie, is, Charlie knows everything, that it said saloon singer on Frank's passport. I would love to know if that was really the case, but uh, it should have. Anyway, that's what defined him in his own mind, but he was so much more. What do you think Frank Sinatra most ardently believed in? Love, I would say love. I'm sure of that love. You know, I think so. I think he knew, you know, and, and the older he got, the more he felt. He felt love the older he got on stage. You know, he felt our love, you know, if you happen to be fortunate enough to be in the audience, which probably weren't, huh? Did you ever have a chance to see him? No, I never did. That was quite a thing. I really realized how lucky I was that I did. It, it, about a dozen different times, different ways, but just an astonishing experience. That was like 
it was just, again, he, he would ignite a crowd in a way. He was the first rock star. I guess that was the, the point. I, I guess I'm, I'm struggling. Uh, well, I'm not, I hope I'm not struggling with it, but it's, it's the uh, fact that he was this icon, this total rock star. Frank, the last, the last 25 years of Frank Sinatra's life, he was a, a complete rock star, <laughs> or 20 years at least. Anyhow, and I'll, I'll say, which is, it, it's a shame. There was a, a very uh, interesting documentary this past year that HBO has been running, and it's a, a two-part thing. And it ends when Frank is... It ends with about another, oh, tw- at least 25 years of his life left to live. Uh, you know, and, and, and the filmmakers sort of deem the rest of it not important. And, of course, that's the opposite of true. And that's the glaring mistake of that of that really unsatisfying portrait, you know, of uh, Sinatra. People love it because they have it because it's more frank than you've, you've if you're a Frank fan. It's, there's a lot of things you, you've not seen before, but it's, uh, it has this tragic flaw to it. And it's sort of in, in, by dismissing the last 25 years of this man's life, you, you dismiss exactly why he is revered and how he became revered. And how uh, uh, generations slowly were waking up to this. It, you know, he wasn't done. People might have thought they were done with Frank. Frank wasn't done with us. It, that's when you know he came roaring back with the, the New York, New York, and and uh, astonishing things as, a, as an arena performer. You know, he wasn't just a saloon singer anymore. Unfortunately, he was uh, he was playing the biggest stadiums in the world, and he was a complete rock star. Nobody had ever done that from his corner of the universe, you know, traditional performers of, of standard songs. Nobody did that at all. Elvis, but Elvis was not traditional. Elvis was Elvis, and Frank was Frank. Could it be possible for you to pick a favorite Frank Sinatra song of yours? Never. No, it's impossible. It is impossible. You know, there. I kind of like him when he's playful. I love the songs where you can kind of hear his personality is personality kind of come flying through the way he might sort of reshape a lyric a little bit in his own vernacular. And those songs are terrific. There's a, for instance, there's a song, not even that well known, and it should be, it's called Stars Fell on Alabama from the Capitol. Oh, yeah. And it's a swinging arrangement. It probably is Nelson Riddle. I, I ought to know these. But I'm not a musicologist. You, you've talked to so many of those, and, and believe me, I, I would there to tread on their turf, but it's a great song. And again, I, I, do me the favor of playing this for your for your uh, listeners because it's it's got a, a tremendous lyric. Talking about stars selling Alabama last night. It, it's not a it's a love song. It's a, just a love song. It's a, a one thing after another. You know, it, it just keeps building and building, and it's got that wonderful happiness of Sinatra that just keeps getting bigger and bigger as he sings it and stars fell on Alabama last night is the refrain at the you know throughout the thing and at some point the song he just he just changes the lyric to stars fractured Bama last night and I yep. whenever I hear that it makes me so happy I can't tell you it's just thrilling because nobody could say that and actually like it's so cool it's so cool you know and and it's like who who could do that Frank Sinatra, 
anyway, that's a song that will make people happy if they hear it, I guarantee What could the young men of today learn from Frank Sinatra about style? You know, everything. You know, we don't have any style. I mean, it's pathetic. You know, it's it's just appalling. I mean, the world has lost its grace and manners completely. Uh, He was a very, very polite man. He was very, very... uh, He's the guy who would always stand if a woman approached the table. He, he could be a woman who, any woman, unless it was a waitress. You know, he would he would stand if a woman walked up to him at a table, and uh, he would you know he was a guy who prided himself on helping ladies through the door first. He's very much the gent helping a lady on with her. Not that a woman needs help in these areas, but it's a nice touch, as he would point out, and it's why not. Anyhow, he he knew how to make a woman feel very, very special, very beautiful, and and that was his great advice. That's how you really do woo a woman: is you got to make her feel special, and you got to make her feel beautiful, and you got to just keep practicing until you get it down. And, and that's pretty much what he said. But he said so many things to me. I asked him questions like, "Well, one of my favorite, a couple of my favorite things, uh, really about women." I'll tell you something, women about love, about Sinatra and love, you can't do better. And you did ask me that earlier, and I do think he's mainly about love. He's about any one thing. And isn't that a testament, a hundred years of Frank, you know, it's really a celebration of love because that's what, that's really what it's all about. I mean, it was really a sense of style, but I mean, he would, I would ask him, you know, what do you do when a woman cries? And he said, an amazing thing. This is one of the greatest things a man has ever said. He said, usually I cry with her. Mm. And that is sort of tells you everything. It's all about empathy. It's about feeling feelings. It's about putting yourself in, in the other person's shoes. It's about just pure empathy. And and that's what Sinatra was, you know, for all of us. He, he, was, our, he was giving us empathy when we were sad. And he was, you know, the same, whatever the... The, the, the happy version of empathy, that's what he was, he was filling us up with. He was stoking us with joy when we needed it, too. And he still does. He gets to do that forever. Isn't that funny? There's so many things that he shared with you, and just as a result of writing this book, what would you say the greatest thing you learned from Frank Sinatra is? Probably that thing I just said, you know, because it, it, you, want, you want to aspire to such a thing. It's a huge lesson just about you know, your fellow man and about in a world of strife and a world of too much violence. And, and, you know, it's all about sort of empathy. It's about understanding someone and and feeling, understanding, taking the time to understand what somebody else might be going through. That's kind of what he did in a way, just simply by living his life and understanding it to be the impact, the way it hit him, it totally flowed through him as a vessel of art. It just, it refracted through him in a way that only God and and magic can explain it. December 12th, 2015, the exact 100 years to the day from Frank Sinatra's birth. What are you going to be doing? Well, I suppose, I'm not entirely sure yet. I will be, I'll, I'll genuflecting. All day. <laughs> I, I don't know. I may, I, I've yet to talk to the Sinatra camp about, I think they're all going to be in Las Vegas. I'm not sure what's going to happen. So in that case, there's going to be a big concert actually in Las Vegas coming up that'll air on CBS, I believe. 
and it will have aired, I suppose, maybe by the time we're airing this. But I don't know where I'll be. I, I, you know, I, I damn well better be in a in a bar. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> He'd have it no other way. You know? Yeah. Now that we're celebrating 100 years since Sinatra's birth, what do you think people will say about Frank Sinatra 100 years from now? Yeah, I know. He, it's funny. Well, he, well, you know, one of his uh, great toasts on stage, you know, he had great toasts, too. I asked, the, you know, I kind of gathered a lot of Sinatra's favorite toasts in this book. You know. Here's to absent friends. F them. I believe is how that kind of goes. He could sell it. Or, or uh, here's to the confusion of our enemies. That was another great toast. But he would say on stage, may you live to be 100. Or he sometimes would get all generous and talk about 200 or 300 years old and say, may, the, may you live to be 100, and may the last voice you hear be mine. And I think that's probably prophetic. He's going to be around. He has to be. If there's a world, if there's a world that still turns, there will be this guy. The way we haven't lost Beethoven and Bach and Chopin and Mozart, you know, we're, you know, 100 years from now, they're not going to, they won't have lost Frank Sinatra. They won't have lost. They won't have lost. Yes, exactly. That's right. They won't have lost. But, you know, again, but the subtitle of my book, The Lost Art of Living, yeah. it, it is a lost art. It is a lost art. You got to love living, baby, because dying is a pain in the ass, I believe, or the the words that are immortalized by Mr. Sinatra, and that sort of says it all. Personally, what does Frank Sinatra mean to you? Comfort. Comfort. I guess, in a way, fraternity, in a way, that there's a brotherhood. There's a larger brotherhood that bonds all of us. And God knows, not, not that I would ever pass muster in his eyes as someone who would who would hang in his circle, although his, his daughters have been very nice, and his son is all very nice to me about This book has somehow been, it, it's been very, very beautifully embraced by the Sinatra family. And what I was trying to do was something that nobody actually had, nobody had thought to do. And I guess when I say comfort, you're somebody you seek out, somebody you seek out when you need any little help. And I think that's true of him. I think that he sounds, he can be murdered, by the way, if you're really hurting, if you're torn up over a breakup or something. It's just that I'm not sure listening to his albums help cathartically in those moments. They help later understand those times that you went through. But I do they help? At the time, they can. Well, listen, you should listen to them and then decide for yourself because they can help at times. It all depends on the moment. The one thing that does help is just knowing Frank was there first. You know what? Whatever you're going through, he's already been there. He's already checked it out for you. He's already figured out where it hurts and why. I always love, I always love, he'd like to sometimes say in the middle of a, a killer song, if he was usually some sort of a, some sexy song or another, but he would, he would sort of pause in the middle of it and, and he would, he would look out at the women in the crowd or whatever and he would just say, where does it hurt, baby? And that is just one of the great lines of all time. Where does it hurt, baby? That's what he's he's there for. He's there for where does it hurt, baby? Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest has been Bill Zamey. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? 
Well, I would say never rush to judgment. Uh, your listeners are probably Frank fans. I would encourage them to just keep doing what they're doing. I mean, I tried to come up with a very, a very pure idea of a book years ago, and it's still in print, and it's it apparently helps a lot of people. And I, when I look back on it, and I realize what I did at the time was I sought out every, I sifted through everything to come up with the nuggets of wisdom throughout, or him talking about the way he did things, or, or and it, it, it's a very, very interesting compilation of Sinatra speak, Sinatra core. I think the reason his family loves it is is because it's purely about the human man, the man, and not really so much about this icon. It was about a man. We're not all engineered like Sinatra's engineered, but there's a lot to learn from the guy. Never be afraid to learn is my parting notion, because I couldn't learn enough, and I still can't. When it comes to him, if I find a new nugget of information about the way he did things, it thrills me. It thrills me. Well, sir, thank you very much for sharing with us. Well, it's been my pleasure, Paul. You're you're an upstanding man, and I'm sure Frank would approve of you a hundred times over. May you live to be a hundred, and the last voice you hear me <laughs> is, too. Well, that's probably one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> Well, hang around, you know, I got a million of them. Well, that just brings me to this point. I hope at some point we just did kind of a zamy on Sinatra. Maybe we can do at some point zamy on zamy. Well, that's, uh, well, you know, and somewhere in all this, you have a, you have probably a pretty good idea of, of me based on him. Isn't that funny? But that's what these guys can do for us. They kind of, we, we see ourselves a little bit through somebody else's lenses. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. You know what I mean. And I think I speak for all of us out there. I have no idea what I'm saying anymore, but Frank Frank would approve. <laughs> well, Godspeed, my friend. Thank you so much, Paul. Go get him. Ring-a-ding-ding, as we like to say here in Sinatra land. <laughs> all right. The best is yet to come. We like to say it. We just don't say it really too loudly in front of others. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Go forth and swing, young man. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at thepaulleslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour.